Grace and peace, and welcome to United We Pray. Taking racial struggles to the throne of grace, United We Pray is a podcast that calls for prayer about racial divisions in local churches. I'm one of the hosts, Isaac Adams. It's good to have you back with us here in this second season. I'm hosting with a partner in crime, da-da-da-da, Trillia <laughs> Newbell. Hey, Trill. Hey. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Doing well. What you can't experience is I have a roast on with fennel and potatoes, so I'm doing really good. <laughs> it just smells so good in here. Oh, my goodness. You are. You're doing far better than I am. I'm just <laughs> here with Carl as he's eating a salad out of a bowl. Yeah. Trill, you are doing uh, You're doing well. And our guest, he made a face when you, you were talking about this delicious <laughs> meal you had. So, Trill, let's introduce our guest. We're here with Michael Emerson. Uh, author of Divided by Faith. Hi, Michael, and thank you for joining us. Well, I have been looking forward to this. It's great to be part of this amazing show. And, Michael, I want you to go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, and I'll just say one of the most important things about you, uh, besides the fact that you're a uh, brother in Christ, uh, and I'll have you talk about your sociology work, but you're a former Tar Heel, which just makes you, it just makes you probably my favorite guest we've had on. I'll just say that. <laughs> If God isn't a Tar Heel, why is the sky Carolina blue, right? Amen. Amen. There's the apologetics <laughs> we need. Thank you for that, brother. Michael, just tell us about yourself briefly, who you are, what you do, and then we'll hop into some of your work. Yeah, I'm a sociologist by training. Uh, used to be a professor at Rice University down in Houston, Texas, and Notre Dame up in Indiana. Um, currently, I'm provost and chief academic officer at North Park University in Chicago. Wonderful. Wonderful. And Michael, you've written a book uh, called Divided by Faith. Uh, and f- uh, Divided by Faith, Evangelical Religion and the Problem of Race in America. And that's really what we're going to be talking about today, because it's been, uh, it was released in 2000, but you started writing it, I'm assuming at least in 99, 98. So really, it's been 20 years since this book. And the the question we're really going to try to be answering here is, hey, 20 years later, are we still divided by faith? Um, so let me just read uh, just a little. I'm actually going to grab this from United by Faith. And it's just a little summary of your book. And then, Trill, I'll have you kick off with our first question. Uh, on its release in 2000, Divided by Faith, Evangelical Religion and the Problem of Race in America, Uh, written by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, caused quite a splash in the Christian community. The book made the cover of the Billy Graham-founded magazine Christianity Today and was the topic of discussion in churches, in parachurch organizations, and among religious leaders around the nation. The book showed how theology, history, and the very structure of religious organizations combine in powerful ways to divide Christians in the United States along racial lines. In their perceptions and racial attitudes— concentrating them in separate congregations. Divided by Faith also outlined how separate congregations have a number of negative consequences for racial division and inequality. So there's a little summary, Trill. Why don't you go ahead and take us uh, deeper into our conversation? Sure. Well, one of the things that um, people might not know about you, Dr. Emerson, Michael, is that you are um, white. What in your upbringing or personal life, led you to write Divided by Faith? Yeah, the great question, because the short answer is not a whole lot in my upbringing. But yeah, uh, I started out as a young professor, and I often will say this because it's true. I was working in the whitest metropolitan area in the United States at the time, 99.5% Anglo or white, um, and just living my life. And God got a hold of me through an event that I attended and completely turned me upside down. I often describe it as an Acts 2 experience. So I was Mm. attending something called a Promise Keepers event. And while the speakers were speaking, all I could hear God say was, race, racial division grieves me. Racial inequality must be your focus. Uh, Just constantly like that, no matter whether they were talking, the speakers were talking about family or how to be a good husband or a good church member. That's what I heard. And uh, I had a complete transformation. I'll often describe it as God put me on a surfboard, glued my feet to it, 
and push me out. And that's what's been happening for the last 20 years. So that experience there, that transformation led to changing jobs, uh, living ever since where our family is the minority in the neighborhood we live in, the churches we attend, where our children go to school. Wow. And that culture shock to me, having grown up in a completely white world, I was from small town Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, was such a shock that I was trying to understand what was going on. So the personal, plus I was working on a national project on evangelical Christians at the time. And mm. hearing them by different racial backgrounds talking so differently about their faith. So it was those two things, the personal and the professional, right. coming together that led to Divided by Faith. Wow. I um, have a real quick follow-up question. Was that event... Um, predominantly white is. I wondered what what would have urged that call when you when the speakers weren't even talking about that. So I, I yeah, I wondered if the environment led to it. Yeah. So the promise keepers had seven promises, and one of them was really radical for its time, at least among whites, was racial reconciliation. So that was one of the topics, and. The goal was to have a diverse audience, and it wasn't particularly diverse at this point. I think it became more so later on in sure. further events. But, yeah, I can't explain why that sure. happened. Yeah. Sure. Well, that's obviously the Lord <laughs> and his leading. Praise God. Exactly. Praise yeah. God. So, Michael, then let me ask you. I was going to ask you about living in a community that was largely one ethnicity and how that affected your view of race relations in the church. And you, you've, you've basically said, you know, it really didn't because I was, I was growing up in, you know, a white, a, an all white world. Uh, but then let me ask you then about the culture shock. So you said you intentionally live in communities where your family is the minority in your church, where you go to school and where you live. How is that? How is even that walk me through kind of even that kind of decision process why you did that, and kind of then how that culture shock affects your view of race relations in the church. Sure. So let me say that up to that point, uh, race to me was just something you might see on TV in big cities, something that might irritate me a bit, because why are people complaining we had mm -hmm. the civil rights movement? I mean, it's common common perspective I would hear in people I interviewed, especially if they were white. That was my view as well. Um the culture shock then was when we no longer lived in white environments where everybody agreed with me, we saw very, very different realities. Uh, people faithful to God, working hard, but experiencing and receiving the downside of resources. The schools weren't as high quality as what I had grown up in. Uh, Neighborhoods had to deal with issues that I had never seen before, even though I knew all my neighbors and I knew they were good people. It was others coming in and messing with our neighborhoods is what it felt like. And people having to deal with these issues. I think this was part of the culture shock. And then there were just cultural differences. I remember we invited people from our church to come over for a barbecue. It's at 7 o'clock and at 7.45, nobody was there. <laughs> We call that CP time, Michael. Colored John, people time. Right? <laughs> He's like, I know now. <laughs> On our last show, Michael Trillia was actually eating watermelon live. So that's <laughs> you just get a picture of. We de Michael is asking for our listeners. We get a, he is saying, "Is this live video that they can see?" And that highlights the fact that it's not. Sorry. And I, I want to say too, when we got a realtor, as we you would do often if you're going to move to a new place, you find a realtor. And so we said, realtor, you know, we'll say what. What are you looking for in a home? And I said, I want to talk more about what we're looking for in a neighborhood. We want to live in a neighborhood where we're the racial minority. Now, we had a white realtor and this very suave million-dollar selling realtor got really nervous. And he started fumbling on his words and he said, well, I can't really take race into account in showing you houses um, – you know, if you wanted to find neighborhoods and then find houses in those neighborhoods, I could show you them that way, I guess. And then he proceeded to, you know, just take us to white neighborhood after white neighborhood. And I remember saying to him, if you can't take race into account, why are we always in white neighborhoods? And I asked you specifically not. 
Uh, he didn't have an answer. We ended up firing him and hiring another, firing her and hiring another, this time a person of color. And when we said, uh, we'd like to look at a, a neighborhood where we're the racial minority, she took us right there and we bought a house. <laughs> That's wow. amazing. Wow. That's amazing. I have, we could spend the whole time just on this topic. I, I find it so intriguing. Um, but because we, we want to focus on divided by faith, we're going to move on. But I just, I do think that it's compelling and it's, uh, <laughs> I, I don't, I wouldn't, I would dare to say that there are many who would go there because that is the, my experience all the time as well as a minority. Yes, I'm in majority culture constantly. And it is the, it is harder actually to get out of the majority culture. And so, um, and not that I'm trying to get out of the majority culture, but that that is, it's, it's a reality that, um, that it's, I'm just surrounded by. So I, I, I just find it so fascinating and I have, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to say, I I agree with you that we could talk about literally what Michael, the, the issues Michael just brought up because I saw this, uh, that whenever we're having a conversation about race, we're necessarily having a conversation about place and geography. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's all I was going to say. Uh, but keep going, Cheryl. Sorry. Yeah, no, I was just going to say I have uh, the privilege of um, mentoring a, a gal who is white and she sought me out who lives in Nashville. And she intentionally, um, her and her husband intentionally live in a um, minority neighborhood and, um, and it's just it's 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 it takes a lot of effort for people to find and go and so anyways I commend that um, effort that you have taken with your family and I'd love to ask um, but we're how go ahead and ask her. I mean, we can we don't have to stick in the script they're they're more like guidelines right <laughs> okay. well I well then I will ask how has it affected your children and. And if you're if you feel comfortable asking answering that because this is a this was on your heart this was a, your conviction, um, but how has your children growing up in um, and being ex- exposed to different cultures and ethnicities how have they responded to this? Wow, what a great question! So you know this was reaction from other folks that was the main reaction like what are you doing to your children uh you know you can do what you want to do but you're going to do this to your children Hmm. and and it was fairly extreme in the sense that for most of their upbringing and my youngest two i have four the youngest two are now in college the other two have recently graduated college uh they would literally be the only white children in the you know subdivision of 10,000 people or something, and and in their schools, maybe 2% white, something like that. So what they will tell you now that they're a little older is that they wouldn't trade it for the world. Oh, Um, They learned how to do code switching. They learned from an early age. To them, of course, you know, that's what they know. They did see as they got older, I can remember my daughter coming home crying once because her very best friend in elementary, now they had moved on to middle school, had said that she was forced to make a choice, either be with her people uh, or choose Sophia, my daughter, to, as a friend. Like, mm-hmm. And so she was choosing her people so that she had to end the friendship. So there were those kind of things that happened. Michael, could you define code switching just really quickly? Sure. Uh, different forms of speech, different emphases on uh what you're focusing on, different delivery of speech. This would be, I, sometimes my sons would start talking and I, they didn't sound anything like dad, right? They <laughs> sounded as if they had grown up where they grew up. Sure, Thanks. sure. So so now you would say that they, they embrace it and they're, they were grateful then too, it sounds like, and they just, it's what they knew. It's kind of like um, when people are, are born, just anywhere, you, you grow up and you know what you know. And so, and they yeah. and they they know enough to know that isn't what isn't typical, but they would never ever trade it. They said, and my oldest is now uh, a young pastor, and he's returned to where he grew up, and he's oh, pastoring that. in a multi ethnic church, and he lives in a black neighborhood. So, he's continued that life. That's so great. I love it. This is, it's so great, and it's it's um yeah, it's a practical means to do what you have desired to do in divided by faith, which is 
more of your follow-up, United by Faith. Um, but in Divided by Faith, um, how did how did you discover that evangelical churches became divided in the first place? I think we all know this answer. We've had guests on to talk about history, but what from your perspective, maybe even sociolog- sociologically, um, or yeah, where where did this originate? Yeah, it originated in a very specific experience, which then sat dormant for many years until I had finished graduate school and was a young professor. But when I was an undergraduate, I was at a university in, in Chicago, and we would go to a church, and to get to this church, which was all white, we walked by one block away, an all-black church, and I would watch as the people would pour out from the first service in these two congregations. Everybody's white here, everybody's black at, down the other end of the block. I was a young Christian, so I didn't. It, it struck me as really odd because I was so excited to be a Christian, and you know, you hear we're all in it together, and what we now are united by is our faith, not anything else. But what also struck me as odd is it didn't seem to bother the people I was coming in contact with at church. It seemed like this must be normal, and I soon found myself adopting that. Like I'm maybe I just don't know better, and this is okay. And so that's the way it was until this experience I've talked about that changed our lives. Um, Michael, just a comment. Sorry, going back to what you said, because it was uh, it was so encouraging to me uh, about raising the way you raise your family. I think one of the reasons, uh, Trill, I would say that's refreshing to hear is because so often minorities are asked to come into the predominantly white space and, you know, we'll change you come to our turf and help us change, but we're not willing to leave this turf. Like, in other words, like, so to put it frankly, and Dr. Hermiston, you can correct me, but it seems, at least my experientially, I'll speak, is that it's, I'm, it's very, it's a lot easier to find minorities in predominantly white churches than to find whites in predominantly black churches, predominantly Hispanic churches, um, and, and I'm in, even English-speaking Hispanic churches. That experientially seems to be the case that I think uh, highlights the point, which is why what you it sounded like you did uh, is surprising on some levels, and even sadly so. Yeah, and, and the data we have, we've been tracking the racial composition of churches now for almost a quarter of a century. And we do see growth in diversity, but it's all in one direction. It is people of color more likely to be found now than they were 25 years ago in formerly white congregations. There's mm. zero change in the other direction. Um, let me get just a quick example. I was speaking at a, a Christian college campus. I was speaking in chapel, and I said, this is your time to be radical as, as Christ followers. You, most of you are not married yet. Most of you don't own homes yet. Most of you don't have jobs in which you have to worry. Uh, you have to show up every day. You have the most freedom you will ever have. So mm-hmm. I, said, I want to invite you to do one radical thing that could change this town. It was a town of maybe 30,000. Very racially diverse, though. I said, for the whatever years you have remaining in college, pick a church where you're the racial minority and attend. That's it. Just do it. They couldn't do it. Uh, yeah. I got feedback later on that these people just found that too much, too difficult. So here we are, you know, 18 to 22 year olds with the most freedom possible. And they already have learned the lesson somehow through their culture that they can't do that. And these are mostly white students. So that would mostly mean they would go against the flow and they already couldn't do it. As we're talking about most, I have a follow up here as we're talking about kind of uh, mostly white students or even mostly any particular ethnicity, one thing you tackle in Divided by Faith is the homogenous unit principle, uh, which effectively says, uh, and even in our denomination, Trillia, uh, historically, we've endorsed this as Southern Baptists, uh, uh, that the homogenous unit principle effectively says, like breeds like, and if we're going to win more people to Christ, uh, and I, to be clear, I think this was started with the best of intentions. It's like, let's go after this demographic and be a church specifically for this demographic, right? So it's a church of all blacks. It's a church of all 18 year olds. It's a church of whatever, uh, whatever demographic you can name. Uh, but in that, uh, so let's say in India, it's a church where there's a caste system. It's a church of one caste. Uh, and it's really not united across caste lines. Uh, 
you guys say that entrenches the problem of racism and division in the church. Why is that? Can you speak to that? Yeah, so much of what we do in church beyond spiritual is social. When we spend our time with people just like us, which is what is normal and natural for us, uh, we get a very limited and I think bent vision of who God is. And it, what happens is it's impossible to separate what is cultural from what is Christian. And I know those things can overlap, but we cannot separate them such that we can go awry very quickly and never know it because we're all believing this together. There's nobody to speak into, hey, I have a different cultural experience. And then I don't, I, that sounds cultural to me rather than that sounds like you're truly understanding the Bible. So th that's one issue. The other issue is, and we talk a fair bit about this, we use our churches as uh, places where we help one another. That's what we're supposed to do. But when we're racially divided in our churches, we help within our own race. Now, the argument we make is that could kind of work if we had equality between racial groups. But when we have the vast inequality we do, Whites have more than 10 times the wealth of African-Americans and Hispanics. That means really well-to-do people are helping really well-to-do people. And on average, people that have much less resources are trying to help each other with greater needs because they have much less resources. It's a very ineffective, inefficient system of Christians helping Christians. Even before Divided by Faith was realized, you said in your book, United by Faith, that documenting and announcing the problem was not enough. It sounds like you've walked out personally why you find that, that it's not enough to just announce the problem. Um, but why don't you explain for us why that is? Yeah, and this is the problem. I think the, the Academy is good at telling us what the situation is, what the issues are. But the difficult part is then saying, what do we do about it? And uh, that is true. Yeah. And if we don't do something about it, to me, we've only done, we've done half of what needs to be done, but it's the lesser half identifying the issue. We actually have to act upon it. Sometimes mm -hmm. that means it's a political solution. Sometimes that means that's us individually changing our lives. And sometimes it's both. But always it's one or the other, if not both. So it's putting our faith in action. Faith in action. Yeah. That's what we're called to do. Yeah. We just can't use words. <laughs> okay. That's excellent. Michael, I uh, forgot to ask you because we're getting, we're trending towards solution. I forgot to ask this going back, but it's been 20 years, right? Since divided by faith. Uh, are evangelicals regressing or progressing? on these matters and what other reflections do you have? It's been two decades almost since you kind of picked up the pen for this book. Yeah. I think we were progressing and for the last five years we've been regressing. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm very, to be honest, I'm extremely nervous of where we're at. So in the history of the U S we swing back and forth on a pendulum between, Hey, we're just better off as, different racial groups to be completely separate and let us just live our lives and we'll each be co-determinists and we'll figure things out. And then the other spin pendulum swing is, Hey, everything needs to be integrated. We need to be together and everything. We, we should just drop this concept of race and forget it. Uh, I think we're on the pendulum back to separation and I'm seeing this in the yes. young leaders, like just so frustrated by it all. Yes. And saying, all I want, what I want to talk about is white dominance, white hegemony. Uh, I don't want to talk about racial reconciliation, getting together. So, and, you know, there's all kinds of data points, but let's just use this data point because it's so telling. When we vote for president, there is no, I suppose, right or wrong vote for president. So I'm not going to say that. What I'm saying here is. We have become, since the 1960s, increasingly more racially divided in how we vote. So that we know in the last presidential election, over 80% of white evangelical Christians voted for Donald Trump, and well over 80% of black, Hispanic, and Asian Christians voted for Hillary. Uh, so, Hillary Clinton. So that, you talk about divided by faith. These are people of the same faith 
interpreting their faith in such a way that it directs them to vote for diametrically opposed candidates. That's where we're at. Absolutely. And I think in many ways, that's, I think where we've been, but it's been um, highlighted, intensified, revealed. Yeah. 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 It didn't create, it wasn't created in the last five years, but revealed. It's social media and everything exposing things in a new way. I think now we can see it. We can see a person seemingly being killed by a police officer and it doesn't look like it was provoked. Absolutely. We cannot unsee what we've seen and, and it affects us in new ways, but I think it's, um, I think it's accurate that you would say that the younger leaders are in many ways, segregationists. And, um, and I've heard it, uh, be said over over and over again people who um are i hate to use this word but fed up in in many ways and um and so i i would like to ask what what is your hope for us what is your hope for this because i'm assuming that you're still um this is still your heartbeat would that be correct yeah, a couple things. One is understanding the history of the U.S. So we, yes, it's just a constant swing. So we will come back to it. Uh, so it's a matter of waiting it out. It's a matter of patience. It's a matter of faith that God won't give up on us and just let us go our separate ways. That God really does call Christians to be together. That's our strength. We got so many problems to work out, no doubt. So in a way, I have, I'm, I'm. It sounds odd, but in a way, glad that we're yes. having this pushback because maybe it will help correct us so we can actually come together in a more healthy way. Amen to that. It you well I I'm actually with you. I just think when things come out in the light, it's only it can only be for the benefit of of even if even if it's hard. Right now I think we are in a very difficult season, but so much has been um, has come out and God, God works in the light. And, and so I am, um, I'm hopeful because what's been in the dark and in secret is no longer there. So we actually have some, something to grab onto tangible to work with and to repent of or where repentance is needed. And, um, because otherwise, yeah, I was just gonna say otherwise, and you talk about this in your book, uh, and you even quote Carl Ellis. We had his wife, Karen, on the show last season. Um, but you talk about cheap reconciliation. And that's what we get otherwise is a is a superficial. It, Charlie, you talked about it last episode where you're faking it. People are faking it. And it's like, no, we really are divided. And we can put platitudes on and niceties uh, and smiles if we're on a college brochure. But we're really not united. We really don't love each other. As, as the self-sacrificing, self-giving way of uh, the scriptures call us to. Uh, so I think, that's, I think that's spot on. Every culture has its downfall. Every culture, I think, is a devil has its hooks into that culture. And for us, the stronghold is, is race. It has been from day one. And I think that there's nothing the devil will push back harder on is us attempting to overcome that stronghold. And so I, I, it's actually a sign that, that we're going through such tough times. It must mean we're on to something mm. because there's such pushback on it now. Um, uh, let me ask you this because, this, uh, you know, you're talking about, you know, pushing through. What is it? I think a question a lot of folks have is what does that look like? Uh, does it look like? What, what does it look like us for, for us to be united, in other words? Uh, does it just look like us being nicer on social media to each other? Uh, does it look like more people kind of growth in the opposite direction you were talking about, where students are saying, yeah, I'm happy to move into this community, and yeah, I'm happy where it's not just the rich helping the rich, the poor helping the poor. Maybe I'm answering my own question, but any kind of tangible, concrete, you can give us kind of handlebars of what that might look like. Yeah, I'll use the term inclusive diversity, meaning like you can have demographic diversity in an organization, but people of color are still powerless. They're not the they don't have a true voice at the table. They're not in leadership positions. So we we will have made it somewhere when it is absolutely standard across all our types of organizations, political, 
business organizations, nonprofits, uh, the academy, on and on, churches, that we have racial diversity at all levels and people being able to speak into from their own experience and actually have influence. We don't, we just don't have that now. We're mm. going to have that. I, I also have this dream, which I don't know will ever happen, that our government, our federal government would say, we so value the diversity of our nation racially and ethnically and, and, and us being able to live together that we're going to give tax breaks for those who live in integrated neighborhoods. Mm. And so no punishment if you don't, but we're actually going to reward those who do. It would be interesting to see if that might change where people choose to live. Hmm. Getting into the tax breaks. Go ahead, Joe. <laughs> it's tax season well, right just, now. Go ahead, Joe. <laughs> I could use a tax break. Yeah. No, I just, I think it's great um, that you are able to see really um, functional, specific, doable ways to put our faith into action. And it's not, and so my prayer, and I'm, we're probably going to start praying soon, but my prayer would be that we would start to see this more, that even this um, po- podcast, that it would inspire and ignite action, that there would be, so- yeah, that someone would even be challenged. Okay, I'm going to evaluate. I don't think everyone needs to go up and leave their churches, <laughs> but but there's there, that we can evaluate um how we're living and what we're doing and where we're pressing in and even, and how we are serving those who are um, minorities around us and, and what we're requiring of them, even, even without saying it's a requirement. So in assimilation, for example. And so I I just think there is, um, there's potential for, for in this political season, and this season that we're experiencing in the church as well for real action, which will only lead to true reconciliation. So I really, I'm, I'm grateful for this time Amen. as we're thinking through it. Amen. Yeah. A couple questions, a couple more questions before we turn to pray. Uh, just given brother, your work, I mean, it just, just to thank you and encourage you. I mean, the pastors at my church, we, we had a three hour di- conversation about your book. And it was mandatory reading for all 30 of us, all the elders. I'm sorry Uh, about that. (laughs) Uh, So thank you for your work. Um, And it's it's been helpful for me. So I want to ask you, because you talked about this earlier, but Divided by Faith is largely critique. I don't know if you would say you're nodding. You would agree with that. Um. So when it comes to solutions for issues you diagnose, what do you suggest? And I want to be careful with that question because I'm actually fr- kind of frankly refreshed at being a minority because people ask me that so often. Trillia, I don't know if that's your experience, but when you're the minority, people are ask- always asking you, what do you suggest? And if I'm ast- working to assume the best, they, they're really trying to give that voice you were talking to, uh, talking about Michael at the table. They're saying, Hey, well, you tell me what you think, so I'm not just explaining this back to you. But sometimes it can just feel like, okay, you're just making my burden even heavier because it just feels like the ball's back in my court. Uh, so, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, white evangelicals and how that you talked about the toolkit and how, meaning how they think through the world and they think through it very individualized, you know. And we hear that when people are like, well, you know, I didn't do, I didn't buy any slaves. I didn't put up any colored only signs, you know? So maybe you go, you, you did talk about solutions earlier, brother. So I want to give you, uh, make, make that clear, but maybe even talking about kind of the toolkit, how can folks be changing, even thinking more systemically about, uh, issues? Cause what you were saying is two people can look at the same video of a police incident or two people can look at a candidate and have diametrically opposed worldview worldview conclusions on them and we're saved by the same savior yeah that's yeah. a really long question sorry but no uh and this is so interesting because when i wrote divided by faith my pastor at the time read it and he told me he was sitting in bed he finished it got to the last page closed the book and tossed it across the room and he said to his wife he didn't give us an answer 
That's what he had been waiting for the whole time. So, you know, we've written a few books since looking at different aspects of the answer. But in that book, uh, Divided by Faith, the, the point is that if you grow up in a white evangelical world, you're taught that everything centers on your relationship with Christ. Therefore, that use the word transposes, it generalizes to everything. So when we ask people, well, what's the solution to racial issues? If we could get them to agree there were some racial issues, which they always did not, they would say, you make a friend across race. So it's that individual perspective. It, it might not solve uh, segregation or massive inequality in access to education, or, but those weren't issues to folks. Their issues were, if there's problems, it means we're not getting along, so make a friend, then we're getting along. So the number one thing I would say, and it's so simple that we can all do it, Mm. is especially if you're white, go ahead and make a friend across race. That's good. And when they tell you what how they experience life, believe them. And that is unbelievably difficult for people that want to say, well, that's not how I experience it, or discount it. Trust your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And if they explain to you a different reality, don't reject it. Say, Tell me more. Become Take the posture of listening. What is the uh, verse in James to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger? Just be very quick to listen. Wow. I, I think that's just, just such a helpful point because so often, especially as a minority, you can feel like you have to prove, you have to validate, you know, if your own pain, your own experience— before yep. someone believes you, and, and it is, we tell you, we've talked about, you know, love believes all things. Not that it uncritically accepts everything, but it assumes the best. It assumes like, hey, this person is a brother and sister in Christ. Why would I assume they're lying simply because yes. my experience is so different? Um, or n if if not lying, <coughs> that it is, um, it's not valid because that's not what the other person intended. <laughs> I have a puppy. And so I, I think from my experience, what I often experience isn't that someone thinks I'm lying, yeah. but they think that because I, they didn't intend this or they didn't, they don't believe that, that it's, it's not, it's not as valid. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I once got asked on a radio show, what's the most, important thing you've learned in this change of life that you've had. And I said, without hesitation, that when you're a person of color, you have to spend so much of your trying time trying to prove your worth that, that you have the right to exist. Mm. And, and as, as a white person, I never, I just, that just blew my mind that I actually have to justify my existence. Well, this is our last question. I believe how does your book united by faith Complement divided by faith. So that was our, our first follow-up to say if in United by Faith we found a few white Christians that spoke differently and they had something in common. They attended churches where they were the minority um, or integrated churches maybe half and half or a third, a third, a third, depending on the diversity there. So we wanted to explore that and did a big research project um, to say in this book, ultimately, both theologically and sociologically, that one of the ways we can address our history of racial division and inequality is to come together in our churches, to worship, to share leadership, to give voice to one another. Unbelievably controversial on all sides. And I can understand it. African-American pastors saying this will be nothing more than a, a new way to assimilate us totally get that, especially when it's all one direction. Mm -hmm. uh, white pastors saying, we're always open to everybody. Anybody's welcome. Uh, it, and it goes on and on. But if we can do it in authentic ways, biblically mandated ways, it will make a profound difference. And Michael, would that be, because you, you know, you talk about the kind of, uh, you know, you, 
I'll use the word deficiency of only having an individual perspective of like, hey, I'll go make a friend. And you're like, you know, that's good. And if you do believe them. Uh, but with those things that you're commenting about leadership, I'm just trying to kind of get in your pastor's mind who threw the book uh, about answers uh, with those things about leadership, about attending you know, a community where you are not in the majority about, are those kind of more systemic solutions or you think, and then you've also talked about the tax breaks. I understand that. But for Christians who are listening to this thinking, I don't know the first thing about taxes and I don't know what to do about that. I'm just kind of more systemic solutions that we can bring about. Any other thoughts there before we pray? Yeah. And this is why I say when you make a friend across race, believe because then you're going to see there are systemic issues that must be addressed. And then you can start talking about how will we do that. If we have integrated churches, that is a systemic solution. That is a fundamental structural change to how religion is practiced. We're going back to how the early church practiced together. Um, the model we have now was a model brought to us uh, when this country was founded, but it was a vast distortion of the first century church which was all about breaking down walls. If you watch uh, Paul get in Peter's face when Peter just wants to hang out with the Jews and he removes himself from the table that's mixed, right? That's always our temptation. So it is a fundamental change. Dr. Emerson, I really appreciate the point you're bringing out with uh, Peter in Galatians 2, because you make the point in United by Faith, and it was a striking one for me about how kind of the the racism or the whatever we'll call that with what Peter was doing, uh, it spread that Barnabas, it, it affected Barnabas. And then when you see them in Acts 15, you see how powerfully Paul's rebuke must have landed with Peter because he's so adamant in defending the Gentiles. Uh, and I just appreciate uh, you speaking to a number of things and helping us think about how we can expand um our thinking on these matters, because it's, as you said, it's so difficult when we're speaking uh different languages and folks won't see it, but you've, you've just gotten, you've been sweaty and you've been tearful on your end of the, on, of the conversation. So thank you for that. One thing we do on this show, th- what this show is about, what Troy and I is just kind of hard about this is uh, we say that we must do more than pray, but we can't do less. Uh, in other words, for uh, that God acts. Uh, and I was just, I was just listening to a sermon about this, about Exodus 1 and 2. You see that the means which kind of bring God to step up to the plate are the cries of his people, right? You see you see the people crying out and God responding, uh, and he uses prayer, and a prayer we have for this is that folks would be at least, at least be praying for their own congregations about these issues more specifically. Because Trillia, I think you bring up a good point that, you know, not everyone has to move, but I think a good application from this episode is just interrogating your heart as to why you would be so opposed to moving, as so opposed to those ideas. Uh, and I think that would be useful. So uh, we just try to have some dedicated time in prayer. You're just grabbing any theme from the episode, uh, anything that's still on your heart. So Trill, I'll have you start uh, Dr. Emerson, you'll pray after Trillia, um, and I'll close, and we just pray for a number of minutes. Well, Lord, I just thank you so much, God, that we can be united on this podcast, that we could come together uniquely different um, and yet the same and pray to you, God, who created us in your image for your glory and the good of others. God, what an awesome privilege it is to come before you in prayer, God, as a people who are brothers and sisters in Christ. So God, I thank you for that privilege, and I don't ever want to take it for granted. We don't want to take it for granted that we can pray to you, a holy, just, and awesome Father. And God, I want to pray specifically for the faith of those who um, might be listening. God, I imagine that there are some who are stirred in their faith, and there are others who could be um, conflicted. God, I pray that wherever they are, that you would meet them mightily. God, that they would um, grow in understanding where understanding needs to be. God, that they would see from your word. Um, how this is important, this topic is important, and that they would see how in your word you've called us to love 
our neighbor as ourselves, which means um, stepping into places and and cultures and and um, environments where they may not have before. God, you have called us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So God, I pray that for some people listening, they would have new neighbors, <laughs> that there would be um, a radical change, that there would be um, a faith in action, God, um, where there, where the, where it's possible, God, I pray that um, we could all, everyone, all of us, put our faith in action in regards to um, this call to love our neighbor as ourselves and for unity, um, because the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down in your the body of Jesus. So we can we can we can strive for unity, and I pray that we would, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I thank you that there are hearers of your word. I thank you that there are doers of your word. And I ask that you would help us to be both, that you would empower us with your spirit. I note that in the Bible so often it says, do not be afraid, take courage. And I wonder why, Lord, do you spend so much time to tell us not to be afraid, to take courage? We know that what you ask us to do doesn't make earthly sense. It takes courage to do things that don't go with the flow of our culture or our families. And that's why you empower us with those words over and over again. May we find the joy, Lord, in following you and not our culture. And thank you, Lord, that you can help us do that. Because indeed, we will have to have your empowerment of the Spirit to do that very thing. I thank you so much, Lord. In your name, amen. Father, thank you for Dr. Emerson's work. Thank you, Father, that uh, though here in America our churches are often so divided, Lord, we know that one day we will be united by faith. Lord, we know that Christ accomplished that work at the cross, however, uh, however much we don't live that reality out. Father, uh, we pray that the strongholds of Satan will be torn down. That the ropes of racism that segregate people, and Lord, how often we self-segregate. Father, that you would convict and challenge us of that and expose that to us. Lord, that we would be grieved by the things we would be grieved by. That our churches would call, would do even the basics that you've called us to, Father. Would you give us wisdom to that end? Your word says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. And so we ask. Father, we ask that you give us that wisdom. Father, we pray for the the work Michael is doing, uh, Lord, that you would continue to bear fruit from it, uh, Lord, that uh, even as people are bothered by some of that work, Lord, that you would let us be bothered in the right direction. Father, we pray that we would see more integration in churches and more integration in communities, that people who bear your image, Lord, would come to know you and be astonished by the way your disciples love one another. Just as Paul heard of the Ephesians' love across that Jew-Gentile line, Lord, that people would hear of the love going on in this church, in this place, in that place. Lord, we do pray. We do pray. We thank you. Uh, Thank you for Michael, Lord, his work, particularly in sociology, Lord, understanding so many dynamics, all the phone calls he's made, all the interviews he's hosted, thousands upon thousands. Father, we pray that uh, you would bring fruit from that work. Uh, We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Michael, uh, brother, just thank you for joining us on the show. Uh, it's just been a joy to have another Tar Heel on, even with the loss to Duke the other <laughs> night. Uh, but here we go. Oh, that hurt, didn't it? It did, man. It did. But hey, we got the first one. Um, yes. Well, if people want to follow, I mean, you so divided by faith, united by faith. Is there a way 
people can just follow your work. Is it best to just see your work at North Park and the work you're doing there? If they want to get to see, hey, more of your stuff, any other books you've written that you would recommend, it will not be self-serving. I'm asking you. So go for it. Yeah. Uh, so Divided by Faith has just recently become an audio book, so it's really easy to access if people want to listen in the car rather than read it. Is there a 20th version, 20th anniversary version or anything coming that we should expect? Well, we're working on it. Uh, we're trying to get funding, uh, moving towards getting funding to redo the study and write an updated version of the book. Yeah. So a couple of years away. And then um, have a book coming out in on April 3rd. It's uh, about the kinds of cities that exist in the world, but it helps set a stage, I think, for Christians to think about what is it that is the goal as we try to live together in our cities. And I, I think it has immense application for Christians uh, and why we have segregation, how we can overcome it and so on. And that's called market cities, people cities. Great. Thank you. I'll be looking forward to that there. And that's what you were bringing up earlier. When we're talking about race, we're talking about place. There's a book called race yeah. and place that I got that from that. Yeah. I'm looking for looking at reading. Uh, so that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for those of us who joined us. Thank you, Dr. Emerson uh, talked about how pe- folks can find out more about your ministry uh, and your, more about your work, particularly as we've had you on really as a sociologist. Uh, we love feedback on the show. So you can go to iTunes, you can rate and review us. Uh, this episode was recorded and mixed and produced by Carl Magnuson. Uh, the design for our logo was by Rob Alvey. The song you've heard on this episode is What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Uh, just a reminder to focus on the fact that it is a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Uh, on my behalf, uh, uh, my behalf and on Trillia's behalf, uh, we want to thank you for joining us. Grace and peace.